Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, kickstarting another week. Uh, and this Monday, this week, we are starting our new programming, which is really just moving around some parts and some pieces, huh? Essentially, what we are now doing on Seeds of Truth is taking every day and bumping it up a day, uh, moving out the Monday. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, <laughs> church history is now Monday, this evening. Uh, what was Wednesday, uh, Pope Francis is now on Tuesday, and so on and so forth. Thursday, Theology of the Body is now Wednesday, and Sacred Scripture is now Thursday. Friday's programming becomes flex programming for us. What does that mean? Well, we will re-air some of the best from the previous week, or uh, it will be a special topic night. I have gone ahead and switched our programming so as to create more flexibility uh, for some special topics. So that is what we are about here on Seeds of Truth. I will continue to be talking more about this this week. All of that being said, it is Monday now, Church History, which means I do have John O'Hara uh, back with me. So, John, great to have you with me this evening. Always wonderful to be here, Joe. Thank you. So, John, this evening we are going to divert from uh, the great Christian thinkers and get into an important development that is going on during the early uh, Middle Ages and on into the 12th and 13th centuries, and that is uh, the development of the university. Uh, this will also allow us to pause and consider the significance of what was going on by way of spiritual renewal within the monasteries. Essentially, what we will be talking about then this evening uh, are these, these two milieus, if you will, these two genres of going deeper in the faith. That is the monastery and the schola. Uh, that is monastic theology and scholastic theology. And in doing so, we're going to have a chance to begin to really appreciate some of the bigger picture stuff that is going on. We have talked before, John, about how the Catholic Church has helped build Western civilization. Well, certainly this evening is going to be one of those programs that will help us gain insight into what we mean to say when we say how the Catholic Church helped build Western civilization. The Catholic Church has been huge in intellectual development of civilization from, from 2000, for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. A lot did go on in the monasteries. I remember St. Benedict Ored Labora, Pray and Work. And as the years passed, the monks began to spend an awful lot of time on their divine novice and chanting at praying, and there wasn't enough time to really go into the scholarship to the degree that scholarship now required. One of the last great monk scholars was St. Anselm, who died in 1109. We had cathedral schools. Some of the great cathedrals had a school, and uh, people were educated there primarily for, uh, we'll call it jobs, within the church, such as canon law, etc. But the purpose of a cathedral school was kind of like a high school. It, it, it imparted knowledge, and once you had your knowledge, you went on to your, your job. And there came a time when 
he had to go up beyond imparting knowledge into what is the nature of this knowledge and explore it deeper. And that is when the universities began. Uh, and the purpose of the university was to take someone who was already educated and just explore deeper into this. And they began uh, in Europe, uh, Bologna and Italy, a good school of medicine, a good school of canon law. And when we think of the University of Paris, that began as the Paris Cathedral School, and then it developed into the Sorbonne, named after uh, the bishop who actually founded the university. It's still there on the mm -hmm. left bank of Paris. And these schools kind of took on specialty, Sorbonne theology. That was the big study of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, th that's how the university sort of began. There just was a need to take knowledge a lot deeper. And with it, the uh, idea of school of scholasticism. Now, scholasticism is a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And the time seemed to demand a more rigorous, rational approach to problems that got before, before us. Mm -hmm. Theology was a study of scripture. One example was Stephen Langdon divided the Bible into chapters and verses. We still use those same chapters and verses. You're in attempting to bring rationality, greater rationality, into the process of church mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, life. Also, um, various things grew out of this attempt to bring greater rationality. Uh, the jury system began in an infancy rather than having uh, someone go through some sort of a physical ordeal to prove guilt or innocence. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, one of the great gifts, John Wright, to uh, the West as we think of it today, right? I mean, right. the jury system, I mean, the, the gift yeah. of canon law itself structures our whole system of law here in the United States of America, and we right. have to remember that. This, this is an illustration of how the Catholic Church helped build Western civilization. Yeah. yeah. Another uh, one was uh, canonizing saints became mm -hmm. a more formal process rather than just popular enthusiasm. You can see rationality and uh, thinking began to get developed into this. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of names that we have already touched upon. Let's take a look at Peter Lombard in his book, The Sentences. That was a book of it seemed to me a summary of some of the great thinkers. Mm -hmm. And if you were going to go to one of these cathedral schools, you had to read Peter Lombard. Let's remember, Peter Lombard's Sentences was the most read book in, in scholarly areas up until probably around the 1450, more so than Aquinas or anybody else. He mm -hmm. was the guy, and what you did is you would read uh, his explanation of these people's thoughts, and you had to explain it to your professor, what does this person think? And then you had to refute it in front of this professor. Mm -hmm. there, there is kind of your model of scholastic thinking. Here's a thought, here's my refutation of this thought. So you kind of have this back and forth internal debate where the student presents side A and I disagree with side A. And so you have this debate mm -hmm. going back and forth, which added rationality to your thinking. Yeah, and it's to remember the word school coming from the Latin scola means yeah. what? It it means, yes, to be one who is learning, but how do you learn? It yeah. literally speaks to the argument, the debate, um, that you learned through the debate. You learn through that, as we've talked about it before, John, dialogos. You talk Correct. about rationale, reasoning. Logic is the instrument to reason. It is what allows us to see things for what they are, critical thought. So this is part of what the scola, uh, what any and every school ought to be about. And it's interesting, John, because if you think about it critically, uh, today often we see in our circles of debate, not two people actually having a dialogue, but there's always this moderator, there's always this third person who offers the question and 
and uh, person A will have their response, person B will have their response, but they're talking to the moderator, they're not actually talking uh, to each other, which doesn't really allow any kind of debate per se. It just offers your opinions, your conjectures, and what you think. There's no real discovery of truth because there's no push and pull that uh, this whole scola, scholastic theology uh, was all about. Yes. Now, let's go back to St. Anselm, who died in 1109. Faith-seeking understanding, that to me is a phrase which I would never forget, because no matter how much you study this, faith has to precede the rational thinking that goes into it. That just simply is the nature of religion. It's the nature of just about a lot of things. Yes, as uh, as it was coined by Augustine, I believe that I may understand, and that, and I understand that I may believe. Right. Yeah. We we look at faith also as a way of knowing, mm-hmm. uh, and so this is important. We talk about reason, and uh, you know the natural world around us, and yes, we can reason that God exists by discerning the things around us, but we can actually come to know. Okay, it is a way of knowing. Uh, more about God in and through faith. And right, yeah. I, I know we've talked about this before as well, John, but it is very important to see that faith does precede reason. It, it takes us back to the end of the first chapter of the Gospel yeah. of John, yeah. that exchange between Philip and Nathaniel, right? He explains to Nathaniel who Jesus is. He is the new Moses. He is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And Nathaniel says, what good comes from Nazareth? And Philip says, ah, Come and see. Not see and come, but come and see, because faith precedes reason. Just another little aside, these universities began to develop various degrees. Uh, We have a bachelor's, master's degree, PhD now. That began in these times, and you you would get your bachelor's, then you work up to your master's. I don't think they had a PhD then, but they had the equivalent of being like a full professor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you have these degrees of knowledge, and if you wanted to advance, you had to go through these processes, and the universities were kind of became in charge of, do you earn your bachelor's, yes or no? Do you get a master's, yes or no? I mean, they they became the... uh, the institution that certified your advancement. If you were to go back into history, and now I'm thinking of, say, the University of Oxford, Oxford received its official stamp of approval in 1254 uh, from Innocent IV. Now, why was that important? Well, you can receive the stamp of approval by the monarch of that, of that country. Of course, in this case, it is a monarch because we're dealing with uh, England and Oxford. But for the wider respect uh, through all of Christendom, it needed that papal stamp of approval. So once Innocent IV gives his approbation, uh, then it has that deeper, wider um, Uh respect. And so that was very important. So you see this elsewhere. Certainly, uh, you had mentioned, I think, University of Paris, uh, University of Bologna, uh, these first universities, University of Cambridge, of course, all of these great universities... Once the Pope gave his seal, if you will, it then had that, again, wider respect. Yeah. Now, by the end of the Middle Ages, there were 80 universities in Europe. Mm-hmm. So you can see that learning and the desire to have a learned populace just kind of uh, increased. Now, uh, Aquinas is mentioned hugely, and rightly so. He is uh, just the doctor of the church, as mm-hmm. Pope Leo XIII said. Yeah. I'd like to give a little example of his type of thinking. Please do. Now, um, yeah. he, okay, here's the question. 
does God exist? Now, I'm going to select this one. This happens very early in a Summa Theologia. That's a question we all ask us. Does God exist? Now, he sets up his reply to this question, does God exist, by giving two reasons that God does not exist. And then he's going to give his opinion. He's going to say, yes, God exists. Here are my reasons. And at the very end, he's going to give his reply to the objection. So objection number one will be responded to by reply number one. Objection number two will be responded to by reply number two. So you see how orderly it is. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. have to take the other side, state it as well as you can, and then refute it. And Aquinas frequently gave the argument against what he was going to argue better than the people who actually made it. Yeah. Now, here is uh, just a little example about does God exist. I'm just going to summarize this rather than read it. Okay, one reason God does not exist is because God is supposed to be good, yet there's evil in the world. Therefore, God does not exist. Another reason God does not exist is we take a look at nature, and uh, nature seems to be able to take care of itself. Therefore, we don't need God. Then he goes into, I say God exists, and he goes through his arguments. We'll go through the argument of motion, and then he goes through four other arguments that God exists. And uh, then he says, okay, here's my reply to objection number one. St. Augustine says, God uh, realizes that there is evil, but when you see evil, good can come out of evil. Therefore, there is, you can find a reason for having evil in the world. As far as nature goes, nature always seems to have some sort of orderly progression. The oak tree, you know, the the little oak develops into the oak tree. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there is order in nature. Therefore, you have to have someone provide this order. Therefore, there's a God. Mm -hmm. So you can see how orderly it is. Is there a God? No, no. But I say there really is a God, and here's my reply to objection one and objection number two. Very orderly. Mm -hmm. It's to remember that the word... Uh, disposition means to be ordered, and this is why the word disposition was so important for Thomas Aquinas. If we are going to be, John, a people of order, if we are going to be a people who think clearly, we have to be disposed. So it's just not what is exterior, it is also what lies underneath. And so there was always this dialogue between the interior and the exterior, uh, so as to be more whole, uh, more clear thinking, and so as to, yes, better understand the world as we know it in light of uh, faith and reason. So um, very important. And what about one of his ways, John? You know, you had mentioned uh, the, the chain of motion, his argument for the existence of God. And, and oh, by the way, as a footnote, John, we have to remember something for our listening audience that when we talk about belief in God and atheism, atheism in the Middle Ages was not about the the not believing in God. It was the not believing in an orthodox God. Atheism defined as the absence of belief period did not really arrive until the mid-19th century, and it's just kind of a footnote because we look at Thomas Aquinas and we look at his proofs and there's a tendency to, to lose their essence if we forget the historical context from which they come from. Uh-huh. So that's an important historical note. All the while, very applicable because they do use logic, uh, the instrument to reason, so as to better understand. Now, as it relates to this first way, John, there's a wonderful analogy that has been posed. I mean, imagine that you drive up to a railroad crossing only to find a train passing by. You see boxcar after boxcar after boxcar, first dozens of them and then hundreds of them. You arrived as the train was already in motion, so you actually never saw the engine. 
but you must infer that the train has an engine because if you see a train in motion, you know that something is moving it, right? An engine is pulling it. If you try to solve the problem by positing an infinite series of boxcars, you haven't done away with the need for explaining the motion. You've actually enlarged the problem infinitely. I mean, if you deny the existence of the engine, then you've enlarged the need to find a much bigger, and we can even say, an extraordinary cause for the motion of such a long line of boxcars. When you apply logic as the instrument to reason, and you begin to critically reflect upon this, one can better see and understand what lies at the heart of this, which certainly is God. And as it relates to humanity, he's the engine that got the train of humanity starting. From these arguments, I come. I mean, the word contingency is used a lot in English. I mean, mm-hmm. Okay, contingency. Everything you took around is contingent on something else. Nobody mm-hmm. got here by itself. I don't care what your scientific invention is, whether it's that. Um, oh, I can't. The, the little speck they discovered last summer. I'm glad that they're doing. But I mean, this thing went through um, uh, gravity and other things. Gravity is not nothing. I mean, everything is here is, is contingent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm. Keep your scientific study going up. There's no contradiction between science and faith. That's right. But everything is contingent. Nothing got here by itself. Mm-hmm. So, John, circling back a little bit to the, the monasteries, I wanted to at least speak briefly to um, what they were about, the monks. You had mentioned, I think, a very important truth as far as the chapters and verses. We forget that uh, before the monks of this time, we did not have chapters and verses. We say, hey, read uh, John chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, hey, read Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. You couldn't do that before the 12th century, right? Correct. Because there were no chapters and verses, which leads me to an important point, actually, and that's this. We have the tendency to read sacred scripture and stop at the end of a chapter, and then we pick up with our reading maybe hopefully the next day, if not, you know, days following. And we forget the context from which we are now reading, when in reality, to read sacred scripture, it is to always be read in context, right? You talk about contingency, one verse always leads to another. And so, yes, we can pick up the Bible, read one verse, and be inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. This, in many ways, is is how we read sacred scripture when you start talking about that moral sense, to really be convicted by what we read. But this is not the only way, and certainly it was not the way it was intended to be written when you start talking about the intention of the author and how ultimately the great evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we've talked about it, John, as well as Peter, Paul, and the other epistles wanted us to uh, read Scripture. Very important. One of the key pieces that comes to us from the monks is this deeper treatment of reading sacred Scripture as one great allegory of Jesus Christ, salvation, and the Church. We have spoken a great deal, John, to uh, that great word typology, a word that speaks to the pattern and the continuity in many ways. Typology itself is about applying reason to better understand our faith, because what pattern, what typology provides for us is a deeper clarity, a deeper sense of that intelligible coordination and continuity 
that is akin, right, to the reason we've been talking about, John. Let us turn to 1 Peter 3.21 here, John. I just want to read this passage and show you that, in essence, Peter was theologizing in a way that we all need to be theologizing, and in a way that the monks learned to theologize better. So if you were to turn to 1 Peter 3, and I'm going to go ahead and read verse 20 and 21, listen to what Peter has to say here. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, happy Easter to all of our listeners out there, right? As we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did Peter just do? He just applied typology so as to communicate the deeper truth behind baptism, right? Uh, Noah being saved is a type to the sacrament of baptism. This is what we are to do, John, and this is what the monks were about. So yes, the New Testament is about better understanding how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, but it is also a book that allows us to understand deeper the mysteries of God which Christ came to, to teach and to hand on. And so, in light of that, what the monks provide us, and yes, uh, origin and, and be the venerable, and certainly, as we talked about over the past few weeks, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, all of these people treat typology, John, but what really begins to develop uh, during this time is a deeper understanding of applied typology to the sacramental mysteries. Peter's epistle to me is an example of the development of Christian doctrine. Mm. When you read the four uh, Gospels, Peter gets chewed out a fair amount of time by our Lord. Mm -hmm. When you get to his uh, epistle, wow, that's quite sophisticated. How did he? How did he get that sophisticated? He didn't mm. seem to be that sophisticated in the in the four Gospels. That that's a very good epistle. That's our first encyclical, and um, he taught a lot. And if you teach, you're going to learn your subject. It, you can just see though that doctrine develops mm -hmm. over time. Well, everything he uh, said, Jesus would agree with. But that's how things develop. Yeah, and what you speak of there, John, is really what lies at the heart of sacred tradition itself. Right? That again, this this brings us back to that great passage from. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, when Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, and he says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. A verse we have highlighted a great deal in the past. When you start talking about sacred tradition, you're talking about that oral transmission of truth, because it is always to remember that Jesus Christ first said, Do this, as it relates to the Eucharist, and preach this as it relates to his teaching program and the saving message of Jesus Christ. He never said, write this. So there was this emphasis on the sacramental identity of the church and the teaching structure of the church. So for what, 20 years approximately, you have a salvific saving hierarchy. So a very important point you note there. And you also speak to, John, this uh, strengthening of of understanding doctrine through the teaching and through the preaching of it. And uh, John Paul II spoke to this a great deal, the need to spend time with the Word of God and also um, preach and teach so as to better understand the Word of God. Certainly, 
this is very true in all of our evangelization and catechesis, whether we're talking in front of someone or maybe, (laughs) John, we're talking in front of a microphone here. The more you get in front of someone, the more time that you spend with Jesus Christ in that way, you have a much richer developed sense of doctrine. Uh, One example of the development of doctrine is the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. That was before Thomas Aquinas was born, and they came up with the handy word transubstantiation to explain the uh, Eucharist and communion. Mm -hmm. And there is an example of doctrine, Christian doctrine, being developed. Mm -hmm. And it came during the scholastic period and trying to put reason behind some aspects of our faith. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up, John, because when you talk about transubstantiation, you're also not talking about something that just poof came out of nowhere. It's just a way of explaining the Eucharist, right? When Jesus Christ says, you you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, or you have no eternal life, he's talking about, well, his flesh in the Eucharist. And uh, that word transubstantiation, which, what does the word trans mean, right? But uh, change, substantiation, substance, form. So the substance of that host actually goes through a transformation, a change. And it is a reasonable way to explain what takes place on the altar. Yes, it is. John, as we look to wrap up our time together, I thought maybe we can uh, turn to Benedict Sixteenth as he was reflecting on this subject matter. And uh, maybe we can start with where he quotes John Paul II. Of course, John Paul II wrote that great encyclical, uh, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And in his opening uh, words, he says, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. So as Benedict XVI reflects upon this, and collectively what we've been talking about this evening, John, he says, faith is open to the effort of understanding by reason, and reason in turn recognizes that faith does not demean her, but on the contrary impels her toward vaster and loftier horizons. I love that. So the eternal lesson then of monastic theology fits in here, because faith and reason, in this kind of reciprocal dialogue, John, are vibrant with joy when they are both inspired by the search for intimate union with God. You talked earlier about that faith-seeking understanding, that fides corens intellectum, that genuine questing to better understand God. Benedict XVI adds, John, and I love this, when love enlivens the prayerful dimension of theology— Knowledge, acquired by reason, is broadened. Truth is sought with humility, received with wonder and gratitude. In a word, knowledge only grows if one loves truth. He concludes, love becomes intelligence and authentic theology, wisdom of the heart, which directs and sustains the faith and life of believers. Therefore, John... (laughs) Let us pray that the journey of knowledge and of this deepening of God's mysteries may always be illumined by this divine quest, this divine love that inspires us within. Amen. By way of projection, briefly, John, um, next week we will probably tap into St. Thomas Aquinas and after that begin to engage the Crusades. I know we 
said uh, in past weeks we might get into the Crusades next week. I think we'll start the Crusades in two weeks. So next week, Thomas Aquinas, and in two weeks uh, with George Wing, we will hit the Crusades. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.